Get ahead of postage rate increases this year with Stamps.com. It's like your own personal post office. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM. Thank you for listening to this Podcast One production. Available on Apple Podcasts and Podcast One. Podcast One presents Fully Booked by Kirkus Reviews. The ultimate insider's scoop on the best new books. Every week, Kirkus brings you author interviews, recommendations from the bestseller lists, and insights into books that are not yet on your radar. Hi, I'm Megan LaBreeze, editor-at-large of Kirkus Reviews. Welcome to another episode of Fully Booked. Thank you so much for joining us. My guest today is Sochil Gonzalez, author of Olga Dies Dreaming, the hotly anticipated debut novel out today from Flatiron Books. It's the story of a super successful New Yorkan wedding planner and her congressman brother, who represents their beloved, swiftly gentrifying native neighborhood and its environs. They're from Sunset Park, Brooklyn. They're middle-aged, grappling with success, setbacks, secrets, and social ambitions, and their respective relationships with their absent mother. Here's a bit from Kirkus's starred review of Olga Dies Dreaming. The siblings both have bad consciences about having compromised the ideals of their mother, a radical activist for Puerto Rican independence who abandoned the family when Olga was 12 and is now a fugitive. Vivid portraits of various friends and relatives capture the richness of New Yorkan culture, and sharp-eyed observations of the Brooklyn social and political landscape underpin a busy plot. It climaxes with the catastrophic impact of Hurricane Maria on Puerto Rico. Debut novelist Gonzalez's stinging and knowledgeable commentary about the American sociopolitical order that keeps black and brown people poor and powerless suggests that radical remedies are called for, even if she gives the personal dramas of her appealing main characters pleasingly hopeful final acts. Atmospheric, intelligent, and well-informed, an impressive debut. Publishers were impressed, too. There was a 10-way auction for Olga Dies Dreaming, which Flatiron won, and it was pretty much instantly optioned for series development by Hulu. The pilot, starring Aubrey Plaza, Ramon Rodriguez, and Jesse Williams, has already been shot. And Gonzalez, who holds an MFA from the University of Iowa Writers' Workshop, wrote the screenplay and co-executive produced. You're going to be hearing a lot about Olga, the book, the series, in weeks to come. And so... After the break, Sochil Gonzalez joins us from Brooklyn to discuss Olga Dies Dreaming. But first, an indie interview with Lee Woodman, author of Lifescapes. What led up to that? What was maybe the impetus you decided to, I guess, take that first plunge? Well, for 45 years, I had an award-winning media career with um, leadership roles at Smithsonian Institution in Washington and K-12, which was an education startup, the Dance Exchange, Children's Radio Theater. And I also had my own media company where I had clients like the Library of Congress, uh, the World Bank, Fulbright, and NPR. And in all of them, the work I did involved writing of some sort. I was a director and producer of radio and television and multimedia. 
But going back to a very early childhood in France and India, I became enamored of language and different cultures and especially the arts. My parents uh, introduced us to street theater, music, visual arts, um, dancing of all kinds, you know, English, American, Indian, and so forth. And I feel like after I decided to retire from working for, for other people, that I really wanted to go back to that creative life of my own. And I didn't know whether it was going to be dance or um, writing or what, but I took a poetry class called Transformation at the Writer's Center in Bethesda, Maryland. And I almost fell out of my chair. It felt like it brought all of those passions together. And I took as many classes as I could, both in Washington and New York and Iowa and California, and learned free verse and formal poetry. And it's just been a total, total rewarding passion ever since. And I've been lucky. I, I've been really lucky uh, starting as a 68-year-old woman to have four uh, books published, and they've been extremely supportive. And I've been kind of branded as the scapes poet. The book that I have is Lifescapes. What do you consider a, a scape? What is a lifescape? Uh, a lifescape, this particular book is about, very specifically about separation and divorce during COVID and a global crisis. Lifescapes is drawn, it's fictional, uh, as most poetry is, because for a poet, it's best to draw on all kinds of events and characters to really get to the core of the truth. And so, yes, I drew from my own experience of going through separation and divorce um, during COVID. And that was really the start of the information about writing this. But what I found is um, in the fiction and removing myself as the I person and having a narrator, a speaker take over, um, it became very universal. And men and women reading the book said, oh, my gosh, your your voice is, is speaking my own secrets and truths and stories and dilemmas. And I think that's what's so amazing about poetry. You you have to deal with the contra contradictions and the complexities of life. And I've tried to instill humor and, um, you know, relief and a lot of different feelings that come through very specific incidences and events, but sort of turn into more universal and global understandings of the world. It's been a much longer slog um, in isolation and confinement than anyone expected. The good parts about that for a poet is lots of time to write, lots of time to reflect and I'm so grateful for the Kirkus review of Lifescapes. It was just um, so humbling. And I was so honored because uh, the person who did the review just completely understood what I was trying to do. 
Thank you. Happy New Year. Uh, stay safe. Welcome to Sochio 2 Fully Booked. Thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to talk. I'm thrilled. This is a hot book, baby. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my God. It's so, it is so weird. It's like exciting to see people get excited about it. So I'm I'm, eager to chat about it with you. I'm, well, I'm eager to chat, I'm, and I'm happier eager to chat with me specifically because I would imagine, with all the heat behind its publication, that you've been chatting with a lot of interviewers at this point. Like, what's your what's your media been like? Oh my gosh, it's been pretty intense, and yeah. um, like these last couple weeks have been super podcast heavy, and mm. and and some print, and, and actually a decent amount of print and web like interviews and stuff, and then some via email. But um, it's it's gonna be I, yeah, I'm enjoying it because everybody's come at it with a slightly different um, take, and yeah. and actually I've, I've I've been pleasantly surprised that I haven't felt like I've been repeating myself. You know, yeah. <laughs> like you're gonna be repeating yourself again and again, and that actually hasn't been. Uh, been the case. And mainly I've just, uh, you know, it's such a specific book that I've been slightly overwhelmed by how, um, how broad its appeals oddly been (laughs) considering how, how niche the, 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 the characters lives are in that way. Well, let's get directly into it then, you know, with that entree. I mean, it is a specific book, but you're also giving readers a lot to think about, a lot to chew on. Let's start with, you know, like one of the old classics, you know, what, what is this novel about? So, I mean, it's a challenging book to give an elevator pitch on. And right, like, right. the entire time while I was writing it, people were like, what's it about? I was like, I don't know. It's crazy. Like, Hurricane Maria. <laughs> <laughs> like, I was like, absolutely ineloquent about it. And um, and so I've arrived at, oh, this is what I was like, I've arrived at. It's the story of two adult siblings, uh, two adult New Rican siblings. One is a wedding planner to the ultra wealthy and the other's a U.S. congressman. And they're both from Sunset Park um, in, uh, are living as adults in gentrifying Brooklyn. Um, and as adults, they're sort of the they're forced to kind of reckon with this childhood abandonment by their mother, who was a, an activist um, during the Brown Power Movement and kind of became radicalized and left them when they were very young. And to their best, they tried to sort of sweep it under the rug and just keep going. And um, when Hurricane Maria happens, it sort of brings her back into the fold and they are forced to look in the face of a lot of their unhealthy coping mechanisms that they've had to um, just kind of keep pushing on, but maybe not in a healthy way. Right. And I mean, like this is OK. So we've got mother, brother and and daughter. Yeah. So far, we've got we've got this trinity, but it's it's so interesting. Again, with so much to chew on, like I feel like you could also present this, you know, and focus on. There's a love story at the heart of this yes. book. Yes, that's true. It's so interesting because I never know it, it, and that's one of the things where it's like this weird Warshak test. Like some people are like it's yeah. a love story, and some people are like it's a family novel. Um, I you know I think what I when I was thinking about, I really wanted just in the outset, I really wanted to write about older characters. Um, and hmm. probably because, you know, I, I started writing when I was 40 hmm. and I think, you know, I was sort of writing in the face of this, um, general kind of ethos, especially in America of like, well, once you're past your thirties, you're baked. Like you're either yeah. a success or a failure. You're either happy or you're not, you're stuck. Like, mm-hmm. uh-huh. <laughs> and I think what I wanted to show was that you can find self-acceptance, self-love, love, like romantic love, like at many phases of life. And I wanted to show it particularly in this, um, 
this phase of middle age and, and from a Gen X perspective, right? Like I think of my, I'm at the tail end of that generation, but I feel very much of that generation. And yeah. I think um, we've kind of been like forgotten. Yeah. <laughs> it's totally the Marsha of society. Oh the no. Marsha Brady of society. And I think, you know, especially I feel like we kind of, in some ways we were told to age the way that like our boomer parents did where it's like, well, now you're a this, you know, and yeah. now you're just going to kind of have a family and be set. And I think Whereas like millennials and Gen Z's kind of were like, yeah, you're going to keep reinventing yourself. And we kind of didn't really, I don't, I don't know. I think it was just interesting to me to show that it's never too late to, to heal. And I think it's never too late to find um, self-acceptance and love and, and, and some sense of reinvention. And so the love story to me is sort of part of the fold. It's only able to happen mm. uh, because it triggers, but then is also only able to happen because of some real deep like reflecting that Olga has to do. Right. I love that. And I'm interested in that. And I'm also jealous of you because I'm 39. So I'm technically <laughs> a geriatric millennial. Yeah. Like how... how I- <laughs> How hideous is that? You know? It's like it's also the worst geriatric blank. Like you know, you yeah. go in for fertility after thirty, and they're yeah. like, "You've got a geriatric uterus." Like yeah. it's like, yeah. <laughs> so, how rude! Like, so rude! So so rude! But yeah. <laughs> it's oh very. It's very interesting to think about, and it's interesting to think about in the context of this book. You know, because it's like so much of this book too is about women and um, women's economy. Women, yes. women's occupations, you know, what, is, what are available choices to women of different communities? Yes. And like, you know, that, that really is, that really is what we're told, you know, like you're baked at 40. Yes. Like you're, this isn't, this isn't your second act unless you're Martha Stewart, which is really kind of funny coincidence that, you know, there are certain <laughs> people at the beginning of these, this book who would try to style Olga as the Puerto Rican Martha Stewart. Yes, totally. Right? Well, and I think, um, you know, I think one of the things that is, uh, was a I'd say a good challenge was, you know, it's, it was sort of like to show also from her perspective, she's kind of this, uh, you know, I wouldn't quite, she's not quite a first gen college student, but she's definitely first gen to like the private school Ivy League experience. She definitely was left by her mother who had the college education. So she in some ways was sort of flying blind. And I think this idea of like, what happens when you don't have a map to follow? Um, and she's sort of stum- she's kind of stumbling towards what she's heard success looks like. Like it's like if you tell me that's being Puerto Rican Martha Stewart, I'll try it. You know, what I mean? <laughs> like, like and I think um, that was also something that I had just not. I hadn't really seen that aspect of the like struggle. And I mean, and just in general, I remember I tell people all the time. Like I used to mentor a lot of um you know, rising seniors in in college. And I was like, the hardest part if you're an overachiever is this first five years out of school because you're like, I don't know how to know that I'm doing good. Right. <laughs> right? Like, and yes. I think what I imagine happening to Olga, like in my her imagined years that you don't necessarily see on the page was a lot of like looking for affirmation. And she ends up in this profession because it provides her with constant affirmation and reaffirmation. And also the opposite of that, but like that's the risk you take, right? You live by the the sword. And so um, I think it was this thing of like, can I get off the hamster wheel of this? And can I redefine success for myself now that I've, I've seen a little bit of the world and I maybe know that that's not necessarily, this. these terms aren't necessarily making me feel good. And um, yeah, I just, you know, I, 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 I thought about this so much. I was like, I had always imagined what happened to 
Esperanza on Mango Street because I would read it when I was like in my teens. I'd be like, go Esperanza, go, like get out of there. And then like I would read it in my like 30s and I'd like cry and I was like, your life's going to be so hard. Oh no. (laughs) And I think like what I, I tried to sort of show with Olga is like there are times when it's very hard, but then she also has gotten so much wisdom out of it. And when she can get it together to harness some of that wisdom, she actually has a lot of power for her own self, for a lot of agency. Yeah, man, I've been thinking so much about power and agency and how power through, flows through institutions, you know, mm-hmm. like, and mm-hmm. I'm just, you know, I'm just like coming to this later than I would have liked, but because it's like so much, so much in this novel with Olga and with some of the other characters, like, it's just like the question I had to keep asking myself as a reader, I'm just like, you know, like, what, like, what does it mean? You know, like the compromises we make to get somewhere in a corrupt system. You know yeah. what I mean? It's yeah. like it's like pay to play, right? And it's yeah. like how much can you compromise and still, you know, keep keep yourself intact, you know, keep yeah. your values, you know, how That's much right. can you compromise like how much will you compromise to get the power and what will you yeah. do with it? You know, so that this is what I love to read about in fiction. Yeah. And, and you know what's so interesting? I when I love it in fiction because you can give some life to it. Whereas I think, you know, and we're living in such an interesting uh, climate right now, politically, obviously, in the sense that interesting or horrific, whatever, depends on what you think. But like, you know, I think (laughs) the idea that like, there are those people that are so like, mad at somebody like NAOC, right, for being completely uncompromising, but then also then are mad at like, politicians, you know, like, Hakeem Jeffries, just for lack of a better example, like, like when it's like, well, he didn't do this or he voted, he didn't, he, he didn't add on this. And it's like, I think what's cool about fiction. And in this case, like I I made a lot of the compromises quite personal, but that Mm. there is always so much more at play. Do you know what I mean? Like, and, um, and I do think it enables you to show that these people that get flattened by media, I was actually really intrigued by having Prieto be a politician because I do Mm -hmm. think, um, you know, I've had the opportunity to meet local, you know, like city councilmen and city councilwomen and, and, and some state, you know, state senators and some Congress people. And it's like, you know, they're real people. And I think we just flatten that so much. And it's like, they become these just lightning rods for what we think we should do when we haven't been in that situation, you know? Right. Right. Yeah. I, I, I think that it was kind of a fun thing to humanize him, um, as just in a time where, you know, our politicians are personalities and they are kind of celebrities in some weird way. And what a strange space to sit in. And I think specifically for, um, for politicians of color, and I think even more so for male politicians of color, because they're, you know, you're, you're young, you have to be a little good looking, you have a little charisma. Mm -hmm. And then the next Mm -hmm. thing you know, it's like, everybody wants you to be everything. Right. And you're sort of, they're both kind of made to be show ponies in their own way. And I think that came from, Honestly, that came from real observed experience and lived experience. I was like, you know, it's like it's this catch 22 where you excel at something and then people want you, you know, it's a way to check off a box of inclusion, but then you feel exploited. And then to your point about compromise, when do you say yes and when do you say no? And I think that that's something they both are kind of it's a pill that they're both sometimes swallowing without water. (laughs) Yeah. And it's really interesting to read about. And I want to talk about, you know, experience and observation and research for this novel, frankly. But before we do that, put a pin in it. 
before we do that, what was the writing process of, of this like for you? Was What was the editing like? How did you decide what stayed in? Do you write long and do you cut mm. down? Do you write short and do you fill in? Like, tell me all about it. So I, I will say that, you know, this was a very um, straight, I'm in the midst of my second book and it is not the same process, but this kind of formed, I don't want to say whole, but wholly wild. Like the first draft mm. poured out of me pretty much in under a year. And that was with me working full time before I went to graduate school for half wow. that time. Wow. Um, and then the version that ended up going to market, which is probably like three and a half revisions, but intense revisions. What happened was I changed a couple of tiny plot things that had made get those character very mechanical. And I really was able to give him lived space. Um, and so when I think about the revision process, I mean, I, I mean, I was so, I felt so gifted because I, at 43 started the Iowa writers workshop. And so it was like, you know, where to me, I was like, you mean I can write for 12 hours a day and I don't have to get up and go to work or like teach at class. And all that's out there is, is a burger place down the street. There's nothing else to do. Like, <laughs> awesome. Like, this is great. Like, you know, like I was like living off of, a, of one pot meals from my instant pot and just like doing nothing but writing this book. So, but that felt like a, like a delight, you know, like it was like a weird vacation. Um, so I think what, what was hard was less the, I tortured myself a lot about the ending, but the, it was really like, it almost felt like one thing inevitably felt like the next, like would lead to the next thing. And, but it was on revision was really digging deep into honesty. And that was very hard. Like, you know, I think not a ton. It's funny. It ended up at the same exact page count in every, almost the same exact page count in every edit. It's wow. just that like how that space was used changed quite a bit. Um, how is, interesting. Yeah, it was really, really weird. Like in the first iteration, there was a little bit more about Hurricane Irma and like, and it almost became like a weird wall of hurricanes and they, they thought they knew where their mother was and it was someplace else and she was. And so, and it just was a lot more mechanical back and forth that took away from the emotional journey and, and mainly for Bitho. And in the last revision, I spent a lot of like really dark, dark nights um, trying to get at the root of like, there's this Toni Morrison quote that one of my classmates at Iowa had sent me. And it was like, um, she taped an interview when she was, you know, doing promo for Beloved. And she was like, the point of a novel is that it puts pressure onto a character to confront their self-loathing or self-hatred. And they either decide to look at it and change or look at it and keep going on. And I had to really sit there and dig deep into like, what are the things that, what are these areas of self-loathing and am I being honest about it? And, and that was very hard. And, you know, and I, I tell people like, because we have a decent number of autobiographical overlap, Olga and I, that, you know, people are like, is it autofiction? And it's not autofiction, but um, <laughs> it's not autofiction. But, but I say that she's like my avatar if I'd never gone to therapy. Um, okay. <laughs> and so there is a lot of like, we're, it's like biographical pain collage. I was like, oh, that would be a good thing to happen to her. Cause that was terrible. Like, you know, like, yeah. <laughs> I can, yeah. like, you pull some random stuff out. Like, yeah. like the reality TV stuff totally happened. Like some of the wedding stuff totally happened, you know, like, oh. it just, like you just sort of like, it just sort of like, honestly, and even like 
like some of the more like painful stuff towards the end to happen just in a different phase of my life. But you're wow. like, that feels like the right thing to have her go through right now, unfortunately, you know? And I, I think part of what made me have her have a brother was that I was like, she shouldn't do this by herself. Mm. <laughs> like, you know, I was like, like, I was like, that would be a kindness like to this character. So I think, um, you know, I, I feel like for me, the hardest part was really being like, she's not that strong or she's not that likable. Like, you know, like that's not how she would deal with that. Like, and really being honest because it's like, she doesn't have enough self-esteem to deal with that right now. Like, you know, and like, and really pulling that apart. And, um, and so it's funny, like, you know, I do see like some people are like, it's like, I don't know that I liked her. And I'm like, that's okay. Like, yeah, <laughs> you don't yeah. gotta live with her. <laughs> yeah. And I think it was also like, I wanted it to function the way that like, I wanted for both of them it to kind of function the way that, it is when you meet a person in the sense that like you get to know, like you slowly get to understand why they are the way they are. Right. Like it's like, cause isn't that, that the case like it's like you meet somebody and you're like, they were kind of obnoxious. And then like later you're like, Oh my God, did you know this happened to them when they were like, blah, blah, blah. Like, and it's like, God, like, you know, like I think that that is like how we end up learning about people is more of a process. And so we observe her and then we kind of learn about her. And I, I just find, I've always found humans interesting that in that way. Um, and I thought that that was for me, a beautiful thing to give her that kind of, uh, give them both that kind of real estate to learn them. Right. Exactly. I mean, we, we observe, we make our own judgment based on our own values. And then yep. over time, perhaps we get context yep. for yep, why that's right. people or characters are why they are. Yes. You know. Yeah. I think she is in the beginning when she's kind of moments when other people find her unlikable. I mean, I find her hilarious. <laughs> so, <laughs> I think she's hilarious in her unlikable moments. So I find it at least amusing. But, um, you know, and honestly, like I, I it was a lot of fun having been a wedding planner to think of screwy ways you could have screwed with people like <laughs> you're like I hadn't thought about that but that would have been fun <laughs> exactly this is so funny I was just talking to my partner earlier today about um the one of the books I wrote my undergraduate thesis on which is a confederacy of dunces by John yes. Kennedy Tool. and of course if you read it or if you know about it you know like Ignatius J. Riley is such I've given that book to more people in my life than I can count and like 50 50 they hate him. You know, like yeah, they, they're like, right. I, I can't even finish this book because he's so unlikable. And I find it completely <laughs> hilarious in the context <laughs> of the fictional world. I wouldn't I wouldn't want to work in an office with him. You know what I mean? <laughs> but like but, but like in a book, this is the kind of book I go for. This is the kind of character I go for. Totally. Yes. I think, you know, and I appreciate that. And I think, um, and I think it's also just, you know, it's on the other side of it, I think we see this a lot. Like, I don't know why we're, we have to be more apologetic for women living really hard lives and then maybe not turning out to be completely likable all the time. Right. Right. <laughs> right. Like, I know. That's just kind of interesting. It's true. And, you know, I've seen it time and again, you just like how, how easy that switch gets flipped too. you know, yeah. like where, where a woman becomes dismissed because she was a little yes. too, a little yes. too right on, you know, injecting a little yeah. bit too much reality into the situation for the comfort totally, of some. Totally. You know? But I think if you stick with her, she's so, um, she is so lovable by the end. And it's lovely. It's, I, I find it lovely to see her fall in love. I, I don't know. There's something very lovely about it for me. <laughs> I enjoy I, it. I agree. 
So let's flip it back to research. Uh, what was research like for this book? And like what elements required the most research for you? Oh, okay. Yeah, that's so great. I have a really great experience pri- way prior to even starting this of um, getting to talk to, uh, getting to talk about Pachinko mm. with Min Jin Lee. And oh, wow. She, and she, she'd come to like a book club that I was in at the time. And she talked about how she basically had to write Pachinko twice because she had absorbed the research so much that um, it was like weighing down the novel. Mm. And then, uh, and so I sort of took a very strange approach to researching this where I researched literally as I was going. Um, And so something like, and I I kind of, I I was like, well, this chapter is going to involve this. And I wanted to make sure everything was quite, quite factually correct or historically Mm. correct. But I was like, if I were to get, I, I knew that that would happen to me because I was like, I was like, this will turn academic. You'll be much worried about like, did I get this right? And like practically footnoting. And so um, I had the process of kind of researching as I went along. And I will say though, that that said, the first thing I did, what gave me the idea was I was reading um, The Battle for Paradise by Naomi Klein, which is about um, disaster capitalism after Hurricane Maria. And that was kind of where the genesis of the idea came from. And so I was quite familiar I've been very following Promesa. I've been following a lot mm. of the fiscal crisis. I've been following this sort of portopian takeover of the island. So I had some familiarity in terms of knowing where I thought it was going to go. And then my mom and my dad were both a part of the kind of brown power movement. They weren't young lords. My mom was, uh, they were both involved in the Socialist Worker Party. And so, but I was very familiar with a lot of, the, they They joined forces on a number of, of issues around Puerto Rico. And so, um, I had some familiarity, but I did a ton of research on the Lords, even stuff that just never made it onto the page. I just really wanted to understand Blanca and Blanca's voice. And there's this beautiful reader called Through the Eyes of Rebel Women um, that I did. And then really, I, I, I went back and I, I did tons and tons and tons of research about the waves of the AIDS epidemic, about Vietnam vets and relapse into um, into addiction, about activists go, falling into addiction, yeah. um, because that is a phenomenon like that's like almost like a bizarre depression that leads to this hole that like, you know, I think we saw actually there's a terribly sad documentary on um, HBO now about um, that follows a bunch of addicts that were one of them survives and becomes an activist. And then during COVID just relapsed completely. Oh, right. Like it's like, and yeah. and so I think like, and then going into it, there was a ton. I, the hardest part was really obviously Promesa, but really going through all of the footage about Maria really going through to see that the, the just blatant neglect and, and what, and, and looking at, you know, four, five, six months out videos of some of the more remote mountain towns that just were still like pulley systeming water to one another, you know, and um and and the activists that were gathering the community up, um, really the communities up and 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 sort of rebuilding were the people that kind of inspired the latter parts in the end. So all along the way, even into um, you know, really um the current state of HIV infections and who and the communities that that's act you know that that that's affecting and and then some stuff like I kind of knew but then I really got into it like it's like like the history of Bush Terminal like the history of the rezoning of downtown Brooklyn where I've lived for a long time um I just yeah and my the history of Sunset Park was a big part of my life because I grew up my grandparents like literally worked at a school there I mean like I, I I spent my whole childhood around between 60th street and 30th street. So, Mm. um, I just, yeah. So some of it was not knowledge that I had that then 
got clarified, if that makes sense. But I really would sort of stop and research and then go in, like absorb it, but not memorize it, if that makes sense. And what I will say was wonderful for me was um, I spent a lot of time on uh, Filiberto Ojeda Rios, who is the revolutionary that's referenced in the book, who's a real life person. And, um, and, and, and on movements like in general, like anarchic, um, you know, anarchic socialism, anarchic capitalism, like, you know, like just cause a lot of the characters have like sort of value systems that, um, that they parallel. And I, you know, I, re- I would say that I didn't want to get bogged down in it, but I wanted to make sure that it was factually correct. And so, um, it all was kind of incorporated into the process. Is a, It's an unusual way to put it, but but <laughs> I, I, probably not the way most people do it, but that was how I did it. And I, I have like a very intense Evernote, <laughs> Evernote yes. file. Yeah, it was great. It was great. And I, um, I felt so proud, to be honest, because even, uh, you know, I grew up, I was raised by my grandparents in some, you know, in Sunset Park and, and I went to school in Bensonhurst for better or for worse. And, um, it was, I was left by my parents during the era of crack and my family was Puerto Rican and everybody was just like, our parents must be crackheads. Oh, jeez. <laughs> and, and like, and I think that was a biographical detail I wanted us to share because I think that what was beautiful about this book what, or the writing of this book was that I myself had been brainwashed into forgetting how remarkable my background is and how remarkable the people of Puerto Rico are and how resilient they are. And when I, I've always been told in my life, because I've had a, an interestingly similar, challenging life in some ways to Olga, but I've always been told, you're so resilient. And I started to feel, I was like, I think this is inherited legacy, inherited cultural legacy. So um, that was a beautiful thing to walk away feeling. When I write, wrote the clothes, I was like in tears. I was in tears writing the clothes um, because I just felt so um, proud and proud to bring this into the world, actually. It's a celebration. Yes, it is. I think it's a real celebration of resilience, yeah. you know, and, and survival and love. And I, and I, I think it's so, it's so fun to write about hard things that where people end up able, you know, you dust yourself off, you keep going. And now you know all those things. And isn't that, isn't that the best part of living, right? Okay. I have to, you know, another thing, we got to do business. We got to do a little bit more business on this. Uh, yeah. <laughs> you, 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 you sold the book. I understand it was it was quite a flurry of enthusiasm. You got like kind of like a, a 10, 10 way bidding war on the book. Yeah. Yeah. It was wild. <laughs> it was wild. It was wild. Yes. Oh my yeah. gosh. Yeah. And, 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 and you sold the rights. Yes. And yes. you, there's already talent attached to yes. this this pilot that you will uh, you're going to write the pilot to you're going to executive shot produce the pilot. Oh, we shot get, the pilot this summer. Here. Oh my I gosh! I wrote an ex- or I should say early fall. I wrote and co-executive produced with Alfonso Gomez Rejon, who did me and Earl and the Dying Girl. Yeah, and we developed it together from the ground up, and um, and we have the most remarkable cast. So I mean, I'm very proud of what he and I have done together with this cast and. Aubrey Plaza is playing Olga, um, and it's like everybody's always like, oh, who plays Mateo? And <laughs> Jesse Williams is playing Mateo. Yes. And Ramon Rodriguez, who um, some people know from The Wire and some people know from The Affair, he is playing uh, Prieto, um, and Wanda de Jesus is playing um, is playing Blanca. And then probably like one of my uh, one of the joys of my life has been that uh, Jessica Pigmental, who a lot of people know from Orange is the New Black, is playing mm-hmm. Mabel. 
And she is also a South Brooklyn girl. And we basically like have discovered and fallen in love with each other. <laughs> I mean, no, actually, I have to say like everybody in the cast is so nice. Like it's been like, you know, I, I'm not, I had somebody say to me in the process of interviewing people to head, start up heading up the senior people in our crew. And somebody was like, did you dream of a career in film and television? I was like, I dreamed of a door in my bedroom. Like, no, like, you know, like I, 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 I like grew up in a railroad apartment. No, like I, I, it was literally like I, but I, I have, it's been a joy in the last year to develop this project with all the people that worked on it and to make some new wonderful friends and to work with fellow artists and get to collaborate. And, um, and I'm just proud of it. So now we kind of see what happens and, you know, pilot is a pilot. It's a bit of an experiment and we see, um, how 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 it goes in the process but hulu has been so supportive and the good thing is they um you know they 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 came on to it a lot of people when i talked to them as i had a a lot of intense um conversations around the rights as well and i well the first thing is i was like if i i was like bring me they were like you know you shouldn't be attached to it it'll be better if you're not and i was like oh yeah i was like then who do you suggest I was like, you introduced me to other middle-aged New Yorkans. I was like, like that have a great track record in Hollywood. You know, it's been so hard to make headway for Latinos in Hollywood that I, I, I knew that there wasn't, it wasn't like a giant pool to pick from. And so right. I felt like it's such a specific, to, and you know, I mean, I, it's not just a Brooklyn story. It's really a South Brooklyn story. And South Brooklyn is its own little weird beast. And it was mm. so fun to be in Sunset Park, to be taking people to all my little weird spots. Like I'd show up with like empanadas to the crew. <laughs> you know, like it was like great. Delicious. But it was delicious. But I think um, I really, I didn't want this world to not be fully comprehended as, as beautifully as I knew it to be. And so I felt the need, and that's a great thing about doing things when you get a little older. You're like, you, you're like, okay, or it could not happen. That's also cool. <laughs> I guess yeah. already going great. Like, yeah. And so, um, but but it's been a dream. And yeah. you know, Hulu is always like, we want this because of the politics of the story. We want this because of what its statement is about the circumstances around Puerto Rico. And um, and so they've been very supportive, and really, it's been an, a, an exciting process. We just said, now we just see, you know. Yeah. Now we, now we wait and see. Okay. So you have, she so have these remarkable artists paying you, you know, like the, the, their compliments for this beautiful work you've written. You have, you know, the compliment of many people wanting to give you many, many dollars to purchase said work. <laughs> you know, you have a critical acclaim. I have a door I mean, to my bedroom now. You have a door to your bedroom. <laughs> you got it. Yeah, you get, you get, you, you're making it. You're making it. Um, so I, w I will ask you, this is one of my favorite questions. I don't ask it very frequently, but I really like it. And it's, um, what is the highest compliment a reader could pay you? Oh, honestly. Oh my God. I, I, I had this in an interview with another New Yorkian woman and she said, I it took me a really long time to read the book, not because I wasn't loving it, but because I would have these moments where I felt so scene it took me to a moment and I couldn't breathe and I'd have to put the book down and um and now I get like emotional like and I think that I just feel like the highest compliment is when I, it's I'm so happy it's finding a wide audience but when another Latina sees herself there and some of her experiences and knows like she isn't the only person that felt this or felt that moment where she's like is this happening to me because of this or because of this like it's like that to me just that feeling of feeling less alone. Olga's such a lonely woman, you know? And I think that whenever anybody says that it made them feel less alone, it, it's the highest compliment I could probably get. 
Well, I can't think of of a better note to end on than that, unless you can, of course. Uh, no, not at all, but I so appreciate I so appreciate it. <laughs> I so appreciate your time, your generosity with me, Sochil. Thank you so much for joining me today on Fully Booked. Oh, thank you, Megan. Have a great day. That was Sochil Gonzalez, author of Olga Dies Dreaming, out today from Flatiron Books. After the break, we'll ask our editors for their top picks in books for the first week of 2022. You're listening to Fully Booked by Kirkus Reviews. This message is brought to you by Lori McMullen, author of Among the Beautiful Beasts. In 1896, in Providence, Rhode Island, five-year-old Marjorie Stoneman lives in a home filled with her mother Lillian singing. Her father, Frank, sometimes reads to her from volumes such as Alice's Adventures in Wonderland. But when Frank can't keep steady work, Lillian leaves with Marjorie in tow. They move to Marjorie's grandparents' home in Taunton, Massachusetts. Soon after, Lillian suffers a breakdown and ends up in Butler Sanitarium. She returns home not quite the same, and Marjorie takes refuge in literature. This leads to her writing about women's suffrage and a decades-long interest in the Florida Everglades. The magic of the not-yet-urbanized swampland and Marjorie's flowering into womanhood merge in McMullen's prose. The phosphorescent sea rolled on and on over our toes until we were standing together in liquid stardust. This novel, based on the early life of writer, suffragette, and environmentalist Marjorie Stoneman Douglas, was the historical novel review editor's choice pick. McMullen crafts a masterful portrait of a woman's suffrage and conservation icon, showing how Marjorie's life is characterized by the line, sustaining the soul of another means starving my own. In our review, Kirk is called Among the Beautiful Beasts, quote, a fantastic debut that showcases an important figure and the landscape she worked to preserve, end quote. Readers can find Among the Beautiful Beasts at bookshop.org. This message is brought to you by Samuel Narr, author of A Kite for Melia. A girl's desire to fly a kite dovetails with her grief over losing a pet in this beautifully illustrated picture book, earning itself a 2021 Northern Lights Book Award and Kirkus Best Indie Books of 2021. When Melia, a girl with light brown skin and curly hair, asks older children if she can fly one of their kites, they tell her to make her own. She doesn't know how, so she goes to the library to find out. There, she discovers a book about kites and uses it to make a beautiful triangular creation with a bow and long tail. At first, it won't fly, and the older children jeer. But Melia keeps trying, and she's successful and happy, because on it, she taped a letter for her deceased dog, Ginger. In our starred review, Kirkus called A Kite for Melia, quote, a well-told, offbeat story that blends themes of perseverance and healing, end quote. Readers can find A Kite for Melia at the author's website, www.samuelnar.com, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and several bookstores across the world. The ebook version of this picture book is available on Kobo and Script. The ultimate insider scoop on the latest books. 
right here on Fully Booked. We're joined now by our editors with their top picks and books for the week. We have Young Readers editor Laura Simeon, nonfiction editor Eric Liebetrau, and fiction editor Lori Muchnick. Young Readers editor Summer Edward is out of the office right now. So starting with Laura, what is your choice for us? So I have a really fun book this week. Um, well, every week I have a fun book, but this one is extra fun. It's That's right. Spin Me Right Round by David Valdez. And it is about Luis, who is a gay Cuban-American kid in small town upstate New York. He's attending this sort of, it's not a super high octane. It's like when there's a middle of the road private school that has Christian origins that have carried over into some of the rules. Um, for example, the tickets for senior prom say that your date must be of the quote unquote opposite sex. So Luis, he wants two things. He wants to be able to attend the prom with his boyfriend as his, you know, official date. He also really wants to be prom king. And he, so he, he, he's on this mission to change the rules, even though he kind of recognizes on some level it might be a bit of a lost cause. Um, anyway, there, there's an incident where he hits his head and he ends up back way, way back in time in 1985, um, where he's he's on campus. His parents met at the school. So he runs into his parents. He also runs into Chaz, Chaz Wilson. And so I, I have to... Um, I have to say, I was trying to find a great passage to read from the book, but I was marking up almost every page. It was so hard, but I'm going to just read this bit that explains Chaz and and his influence on um, Luis's life. Chaz Wilson is my ghost of gayness past. I mean, not literally. No skinny black boy with violet eyes appears in my mirror or emerges from the shadows when no one else is looking, but he haunts my life like nobody's business, even so. When I first came out, I got, I love you as you are, and she meant it. But within minutes, she was reminding me about Chaz Wilson. When I wanted to have the teeny tiniest rainbow flag tattooed on my bicep, sorry, honey, remember Chaz Wilson. When ASA turned down my proposal for an allies club, I mean, it didn't even have the word gay in the name. Instead of sympathy, what did I get? Think about Chaz Wilson. It's like that kid died a thousand times instead of just once. For all this remember what happened talk, nobody actually knows what did happen that night. So Chaz was like the one gay kid, like classmate, also one of the few students of color, you know, back in, in the 80s when he, he was going to school with Luis's parents. And so this is an opportunity for Luis to find out more about his dad, who's not really a big part of his life to get to know Chaz, figure out what happened. But as we've all learned from time travel movies and books, if you change the past, it can have serious repercussions for the future. And it's just this book, it's it's such a fun premise. You're going to have dead or alive stuck in your head. Um, <laughs> Luis's voice is so great. Uh, some of us who remember the, the 80s, 1985. Um, you know, Luis is just, he's funny. He's, you know, there's excellent pacing, character development. It's serious, but it, the style is so witty. It's just this great, like, not unputdownable book. That sounds like so much fun. And I, Laura, I'm so glad that you said dead or alive because it was going to 
haunt me. Well, I guess I could Google <laughs> it, you know, like the song. Yeah. In fact, that song pops into my head fairly frequently. <laughs> I love that song, but I could It's a good one. I would not have. I, I one time years and years ago, I reviewed um, High Fidelity by Nick Cornby when I worked at Newsday a really long time ago. And I used the headline, you spin me right round. And which, you know, I don't know if anyone got it except for me, but I thought it was perfect for high fidelity. And uh, (laughs) it made me laugh. Um, But also I have a read alike um, for sort of older teenagers. If they like this book, they would also like, I think, One Last Stop by Casey McQuiston, which I think I've talked about before, which is a um, sort of new adult romance about um, two women who fall in love. And one of them is a time traveler from the 60s who somehow gets stuck on the subway in New York City and she can't get off. So I think it would appeal to a very similar audience. Excellent. I, I I want I added that to my to read list when you recommended it before. And I love high fidelity. That's that's a great I love the headline you came up with too. Very funny. Oh, you know, actually Casey McQuiston also has her next book is is YA, so you should be seeing that soon, I think. Ooh, excellent. Yeah. Thanks. Awesome. I mean, this book sounds amazing, Laura. A little bit hurting my feelings that we're now time traveling back to 1985, historic 1985. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But be that as it may, Laura's pick for the week is Spin Me Right Round by David Valdez. Thank you so much, Laura, for that choice. Next, we've got nonfiction. Aaron, what have you chosen for us? Delighted to see at the top of the New York Times bestseller list, The 1619 Project, A New Origin Story, edited by Nicole Hannah-Jones, Caitlin Roper, Elena Silverman, and Jake Silverstein. And it's a book-length expansion of the New York Times Magazine issue, exploring slavery in America and race in America from, you know, from the beginning. In these days of all this nonsense about critical race theory and how it's hurting our children and all that stuff. This book is an amazing corrective and it's, it tells a lot of stories that haven't been told in the history books. Um, it, you know, topples countless myths. I think it's, it, it's a book that everybody, everybody in America should read. Um, it's got, you know, an amazing group of contributors from Michelle Alexander to Barry Jenkins to Brian Stevenson, Jasmine Ward. Um, it's just really who's who of, of, you know, contemporary writers on race and cast. And it's, you know, like I said, I'm happy to see that at the top of the bestseller list rather than some of the other things we've seen over the past year or so. And it's, um, yeah, like I said, it's, it's a really, it's a must read for every American. It should be, it should be in every school. It won't be, but it should be. I can't wait to read that. I, I got that for my son for Hanukkah in one of those kind of evil, I'm going to get you yeah. a book that I want to read. That's a great strategy. I like it. <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> and also everybody should look for the picture book adaptation, Born on the Water, which is just stunning. Eric's pick for the week is The 1619 Project, A New Origin Story. It's edited by Nicole Hannah-Jones, Caitlin Roper, Elena Silverman, and Jake Silverstein. Thank you, Eric, for that choice. And finally, we have fiction. Lori, what have you picked for us? Um, I have a debut novel called The School for Good Mothers by Jessamine Chan. And this is a book about a woman named Frida who is 
she gets caught up in this crazy system. She she's a single mom. She has an 18-month-old daughter. A few months after the daughter was born, she found out that her husband was having an affair with a younger woman. He left. They get along fine. They've got a sort of co-parenting situation where they each have the baby three and a half days a week. But um, Frida is just a bit strung out. The baby's not sleeping. She's crying all the time. Um, She can't really get a break. So at a certain point when Harriet, the baby, is sleeping, Frida goes out to her office. She works at the University of Pennsylvania part-time, working with academics, helping them prepare things that they're writing. She needs to go pick up a file. She stops for a cup of coffee, leaving Harriet home in her crib, you know, sleeping. But obviously the baby didn't stay asleep. She started crying. The neighbors called the police. And then, you know, the whole Orwellian machinery of the state comes down on Frida. They take Harriet away. She goes to live with her father and his girlfriend. And meanwhile, Frida has to be judged. And this is when, you know, this all sort of seems like something that could happen, but then it becomes kind of dystopian. The um, Child Protective Services puts up cameras everywhere in her apartment and is looking at her 24 hours a day to judge, you know, is she fit to be a mother? You know, her house was dirty when they, you know, went to pick up Harriet. Um, why was it so messy? You know, does she have friends? Is she, you know, what are her emotions like? So, you know, after then, of course, they have to have a few, um, and during all this time, she can't see Harriet, but then they have to have a few sessions with social workers who are going to try to watch Frida play with Harriet and see what their interaction is like. And of course, as, you know, is not surprising if you've ever ever met an 18 month old who hasn't seen her mother in a few weeks and is confronted with a stranger, Harriet ends up biting the social worker and it's all a mess and, you know, things don't go very well. And to make a long story short, Frida ends up getting sent to the school for good mothers, which is like an actual place on the campus of a former college. And there are just many, many, many women there. She's sentenced to be there for a year. It's like a prison for mothers where they're going to reeducate you to be selfless and empathetic and all about your children. And they give you these life-size robot dolls that you have to basically raise for the next year. And of course, you know, during this, most of the book that takes place at this camp, you know, there are interactions among the different women and there are, you know, drama and all different kinds of things. The focus is on, you know, the kind of, brainwashing of these women to put themselves completely last and be there only for their children. It's a really, it's, you know, it's just, it's weird and it's fun. It's, I mean, it doesn't sound fun, but you know, it's just like a, it's, there is just this kind of crazy, you know, situation and it's, um, it's just really clever and uh, creative and, and pointed and lots of things. I think it's a really fun and interesting book. Laurie, I was thinking as you were speaking about how, you know, this kind of dystopian story, in some ways, it feels really well suited for talking about parenting. I mean, not, not because of, not because of children themselves, but just, you know, like the milieu that a lot of us 
our parents in. Uh Um, And it reminded me, I really enjoyed a book that came out a couple of years ago, um, The Gifted School by Bruce Holsinger. Holsinger. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, About, it's these, for anyone who hasn't read it, it's these upper middle class parents in Colorado who are kind of vying to get their kids into these spots at a magnet school. And it's just satirical and it felt so true in so many ways, but yeah, exactly. And it, that's, you know, it, that's just what it's about, about the expectations that have been put on parents now and the expectations that the parents put on their kids and the way different parents judge each other. And are you doing it right? And, you know, particularly mothers in this book, you know, like mothers have to fit into this mold or everybody's going to be judging them. This is kind of amazing. This is two books it immediately made me think of were Small Animals, Parenthood in the Age of Fear by Kim Brooks, but that was not fiction. Right. And you, re- you remember that was a few years ago uh-huh. and she had left her young son in the car to buy some earphones at Target that he really needed for a plane ride. And she came back and some good Samaritan had reported her and she went through all the yeah. legal, you know, and then she used that as a gateway to telling a larger story about expectations placed on parents and specifically mothers. And if you cross that with Clara and the son... By Kazuo Ishiguro, you know, like like it's kind of like you know, with the life-size weird doll. I'm, I'm, you, you've convinced me. I'm excited to read this book. (laughs) Thank you. Uh, One more time. The title of it is "The School for Good Mothers." It's by Jessamine Chan. Thanks one more time, Lori, for that one. Well, that does it for another episode of Fully Booked. Thank you all so much for joining us. Please join us again next week when my guest will be Antoine Wilson, author of the new novel Mouth to Mouth, which our reviewer calls a deliciously nasty morality play in the guise of a thriller. I hope you're intrigued. I am. And I look forward to talking with him soon. But until then, you know what to do. Turn this thing off and go read a book. Thanks for listening to Fully Booked by Kirkus Reviews. Check out new episodes every Tuesday at podcastone.com, on the Podcast One app, or you can subscribe on iTunes.